Good morning. I love it. Bob's first day of work, and he works for 30 minutes and leaves. Uh, it's a great way to start. When we were talking around the financials, uh, making the offer to him, it was 64 degrees here. It was 20 degrees below there. So I said, here's your offer. I'll offer you 64, and that's it. And uh, so that's uh, where it was more to the temperature. Uh, after being here for 21 years, I'm your executive pastor. Most people don't know who my wife is because she loves to serve behind the scenes, but on day one, it'd also be good for you to know who uh, Laura is. Laura, would you stand up and just wave so you guys know this Laura. Laura, we are thankful. We're so thankful because I know after being this many years in one place, having the courage to follow the Lord's calling uh, and uh, to a whole nother place, it takes a lot. And so we are grateful that the Lord's called you here as well. And we pray that you will uh, know that Bob is cared for, but we know that you are cared for and you're loved by this congregation as well. So welcome to our family as well. We're glad you're here. Uh, you guys, it's good to be with you. There's so many great things happening in the life of Lake Forest Church, especially here on this side uh, of the lake. And uh, one of those is Bob being a part uh, of our family. The, the other piece of that is that in about uh, five months, we're going to be opening the new building. And that is so cool. And I wanna, I'm going to put him on the spot because he doesn't like it. But Mike Sharp, thank you for the way that you have led us uh, into that place. And uh, so you guys will never know the amount of work this man has put in to helping us get into the building. And, uh, and, and you won't know if it was effective or not until we get into the building. So we are so thankful for you, brother. That's a, and I'm going to share another exciting piece of news that's going to happen in a little while, but I want you to understand that there's just some great stuff happening here. And it's great stuff because having Bob on board, he creates some new opportunity for community to happen and for people to build relationship. And that's going to be critical as we're allowed to gather back together. But as we move into this new building, and then there are going to be so many other people in this community who are excited about joining us in this mission. And, and that's just exciting stuff to happen. So I just want you to know those things are coming. Now, I don't know about you, but in my household, there is one person in our household who is a rule keeper. There's another person in our household who sees those rules as suggested behavior. Now, in your household, I want to see uh, who you are. You may not know who you are, but here's a good way to know which one you are. When Aaron said you have to register for the egg hunt, you're a rule keeper if you went, okay. You're a suggested behavior person if you went, oh, we might show up, okay? <laughs> so if you are the rule keeper in your house, raise your hand. Who's the rule keeper? Okay, keep your hands up. Keep your hands. Aaron, turn around. These are, look at these people. These are the people who will be over your building maintenance and room reservations of the new building, okay? All right, if you're the person who is, uh, it's just suggested behavior. Raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay, Bob, you see these folks? They will be your best community group leaders because they'll gather people no matter what, no matter what the rules are. So there, there's different people in our households, and we're going to use each of us because the rule keepers and the suggested behavior type person, you play a significant role. For those of you who are rule keepers today, you're going to love where we are in the whole story. 
So we've been tracking through the whole Bible. We're going to be doing this over the, this whole year. But for those of you who are rule keepers, you're going to especially love this. So let me bring us up to the place where we are in the story. God's people, the Israelites, they've just left the slavery of Egypt. They've been under the authority of Pharaoh, and they, they are multiplying, and they're increasing in number, but they're doing this in slavery to Egypt. But God sent a man named Moses to lead them out of Egypt and into a promised land, into a new kingdom where God says, I am now going to be your king and you are my people. Now, it's really important for you to understand that God used Moses. Moses was the people's leader, but he was not their king. God was their king, and he's establishing a brand new kingdom. And so in establishing a brand new kingdom, it's important for him that the people in his kingdom understand this is how we act and live in this kingdom. And because they're just getting going, they're in this new kingdom, God uses Moses. He calls him up on top of a mountain and says, here are the rules that you need to give to the people about what it means to live here in my kingdom. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 19, where we see this. Verse 3 through 6. Moses went up on top, went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God is calling the Israelites. He's saying to them, you're going to be different. You're going to be a different people. And if you keep these rules and commands, then what you will see is everybody will look at you and call you blessed. And you will be set aside as priests as holy people, priests who care for the rest of the world, as a holy people who honor Yahweh. And God gives then, in this context, the Ten Commandments to Moses. So let's see what these Ten Commandments are. We're very familiar with them, but let's look at them. And God spoke all these words. I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the first one's very simple. I'm your king, I'm your God, no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the second command, no idols. Don't worship anything or anyone above me. The third commandment summarized as watch your language, kind of. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. In other words, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Now, this commandment by itself almost kept me from taking up golf as a hobby. <laughs> because on the golf course, as many people know, the name of Jesus is spoken 
more there than in a church, just not properly. But this commandment almost kept me away from golf. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor your foreigners residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Taking a day each week, resting, enjoying the fruits of your labor. This is a little bit harder one, especially in our culture, uh, to keep. But a day each week to break from your daily patterns just to be still. This is a practice that I actually believe is what has allowed me to be a pastor for over 30 years, is taking time and stopping, being still, breaking routine, resting, and not being on all the time. This is actually one of those uh, commandments that we as a church take very seriously in a whole other level, not only weekly, but also in different years. Every seven years, for each of the pastors in our church, we give them a sabbatical, a three-month sabbatical. In fact, for every member of our staff team, we've actually created a sabbatical plan for all of our staff. Why? Because we believe that it's important in order for a pastor to make it the long haul is to stop and to reflect and to enjoy the fruits of their work instead of being on all the time. I told you I had some exciting news for you. The other piece of that exciting news is last year Aaron hit his seventh year of ministry here. Last year he was supposed to take a sabbatical, we decided, Let's wait a year until something opens in order for COVID to allow you to go and just to rest and to be. So April 15th, 18th, in four weeks, Aaron is going to be going on a three-month sabbatical. And we are just so grateful for the amount of work and time that he's done. So Aaron, come up here. We are so thankful, brother. For God's call on your life in this church. And for the last seven years, you have busted it. This guy has, uh, God's been using him to plant this church, use him to move us through a building campaign, uh, moved us into developing a healthy staff team, and caring pastorally for so many faces that are here and watching online. And I know you're tired. And I know that this is a well-deserved break. And on behalf of Lake Forest Church, what an honor it is for us to send you away for three months. <laughs> We're going to have so much fun. Uh, Mary Robin, thank you for sharing your husband with this church. I hope you get to know him in new ways over this next three months as well. Uh, but I want you all to know that this staff, your staff team, we've got things in control. We'll handle. They're, these guys are phenomenal. But your pastor is going to leave on April 18th and will be gone for three months resting completely checked out. Why? Because we believe in the commandments of God. So I want to pray for him right now. Father, I thank you for Aaron. I thank you for all the ways you've used him. 
And I thank you for the way that you've used him to nurture and to care for others. I pray that these three months that he's away, that you would restore him and create in him a new energy to lead us into this next place as well. Uh, thank you that he is your leader here, but you are king. And so we will continue to follow him, you even while he is resting. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, brother. So some of you I know you're wondering, okay, wait, what's going to happen? We're good. What we have found is each of our pastors in doing this, all of our lead pastors are still in place. All of our lead pastors have had longevity, and every church where the lead pastor has gone on sabbatical, they've thrived during that time. To the point when they come back, you go, do we really need them? That's what we actually want when you come back. Yes, we do. We do. Let's get to the next commandments. The next six are real brief. Honor your mother and father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Thir verse 13, you shall not murder. 14, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbors. Now, I think we would all agree that these are still pretty good things to follow even today. Now, God gave these commandments, and they're basically known as the moral laws that he gives to Moses during this time. They're not the only laws that he gives. He actually gives uh, Moses civil laws and what are called ceremonial laws. And these are the 10 moral laws that he gives. The civil laws are for the Israelites specifically and how they're to live together. And then there are ceremonial laws that he gives as well and how to, for the priest, in order to lead the people. Now, in the book of Leviticus, you actually find that he's given 613 laws. So for you rule keepers, as you read this this week, I pray that you will have a lot of fun applying all 613 of them. I can promise you next week we'll have a lot of more suggested behavior people in the room. But let me put, this, put you at ease. The civil laws were specifically for the people of Israel. So you're clear of those. When Jesus came in the New Testament, when he lived a perfect life, sinless life, and then he was sacrificed on the cross and he died for all who have sinned, he fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. And so in Jesus' death on the cross, he did not do away with the law, he fulfilled all of those laws. The other thing that he did is he actually came and he took the Ten Commandments, the moral laws, and he narrowed them down to two. Here's what we see in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So take this and to look and to see at these laws that we're looking at, where we were at 613, Jesus has now brought down to anyone who was a Christ follower two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He took the first four commandments 
And he summarized it into love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's the first four. The next six is summarized into love your neighbor as yourself. So really, rule keepers, you have two commandments to keep. So really, suggested behavior, folks, you have two commandments to keep. But there's something bigger to capture of what's going on in why God gave Moses these Ten Commandments. It's more than just acting on these behaviors. It's more than keeping these commandments. There's something much bigger happening in the whole story that I want you to capture in the sea. We're actually given a hint of this from Paul in a couple of his letters in the New Testament. But I want you to capture what's going on. And in order to capture what's going on, we're going to back up in the story. We're going to go all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're going to look and we're going to see that there's a theme that goes all the way through Scripture. And this is the theme that you see all the way through Scripture. Sin, judgment, grace. You see that all the way through the Bible. And I want to illustrate it back to Adam and Eve. Adam, he's given a command. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. His sin, he does eat from this. God's judgment, he makes the work of the man and the woman harder. He doesn't curse them, but he curses their work. The grace, he clothes them. He takes them out of the garden in order to protect them from living this way for all time. Second example, they're now out of the garden. God gives them the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The sin is what they're filling, this sin is multiplying. More than people are multiplying. The grace, Noah and his family are spared along with two of every creature. The third example, Noah and his family get off the ark and the same command is given to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The sin, they stop. They build a tower, the Tower of Babel. God's judgment, he destroys the tower. His grace, he scatters the people to accomplish the mission that he set forth with them. Do you see this pattern? Sin, judgment, grace. You see this all the way through the Bible, and you actually see it in the story we're looking at today. But everything changes in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, there's a man named Abraham who shows up, and we no longer see a command from God, but we see a covenant from him. No longer is Abraham or the people given a command, something you have to do, but he's given a covenant, a promise, something that God is going to do. And here's what he said to Abraham in chapter 12. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna bless you. I'm gonna make all this happen. And guess what, Abraham? It has nothing to do with what you do and don't do. This is a promise. This is not a command. And then you move through the rest of Genesis And we read of Abraham's descendants, how they're being fruitful, multiplying. 
And God is fulfilling this promise, but yet they're stuck in slavery in Egypt. But God has said, I'm going to bless you across the world. And so you don't need to be stuck in Egypt. Moses enters the scene to free the people of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. He delivers them. And the people of God are now for the first time under the kingship of God. And that's where we are in our story. And this is why it's important to capture all this. I'm going to put a time frame on this for you. It's been 430 years since God gave a promise to Abraham, and we see God taking the next step in fulfilling this promise. Now, that should be encouraging to you, because if you feel like God has not kept the promise that he made to you, it may be he's just not taking the next step. And it may be that you have to wait 430 years for him to do that. But that's where Abraham is. It's been 430 years, and like this situation, his fulfilling of his promise may not look like what you thought it would be. The next step in fulfilling this promise is actually the Ten Commandments and the other 600 commands that God gives. It's been 430 years since God gave this promise to Abraham. So for 430 years, the people of God had no command from God. And so there was nothing in these 430 years that they were disobedient to God with. So for 430 years, they're not doing wrong by God because there's no command for them to break. And yet, for 430 years, sin is living in them. And sin is all around them. And yet they have no idea they're sinning because there's no laws to be broken. As soon as God gives these laws, their sin becomes evident. Sin shows its ugly head. And it didn't mean that they just started sinning. It means that they became aware of their sin. The best example of this happens to me when I'm driving up and down 16. When I'm driving up and down 16, sometimes I find that I'm going 75, 80 miles per hour. Why? Because that's what everybody's doing. And then all of a sudden, everybody slows down, and it's 55 miles per hour. You know what happened. There's a police car. There's a highway patrolman that's just shown up, right? It doesn't mean that we weren't breaking the law. It just becomes now the law's there. We're aware of it. And that's part of what's happening in this story, is they're sinning, but yet they don't know they're sinning until the law shows up. The people of God were in slavery not only to Egypt, but to sin itself. And it became evident when the law showed up. So they began to think, so here's part of what the story when the law shows up, they now begin to think that the way we get right with God is by keeping all of these laws. When we keep them, God's happy with us. When we break them, God's upset with us. But what they found over and over is they couldn't keep the laws. No matter how hard they tried, they couldn't keep the laws. And each of us in this room, I believe, can understand that. I try to live every day doing the things that God's asked me, and I actually may make it a few days. 
Okay, reality, I may make it a few hours. But what I find is as I'm trying to honor the Lord is that I keep breaking the commands of the Lord. Okay, then I move into this thinking, if I do one bad thing, then maybe it'll be good if I do three good things. And we start weighing those. And then I find, okay, I can't really do three good things. I end up doing three bad things. And so then my whole perspective on the commandments change. Then I start prioritizing them. Okay, I may not have kept numbers one and two, but okay, number six, I know I kept. I haven't murdered anybody, okay? And then I read the statements of Jesus. Oh, you haven't murdered anyone. Have you hated your brother? Have you hated your sister? Then you've committed murder. Dang. Okay, number seven, I know I have a kid. I've not committed adultery. Jesus says, okay, really? Have you ever looked at another spouse with lust? Then you've committed adultery. Well, this really stinks. If I can't do those two, let's don't even talk about the other eight. And you can see why some people begin to think, well, these laws are bad. Because all they're doing is showing how ugly and sinful I am. And some people even ask the question, well, why did God even give the laws? Wasn't it okay that the Israelites just weren't aware? Wasn't it okay? I mean, life just became harder when all these laws started to show up. And we ask these questions because like the Israelites, we begin to think that the laws that God gave us we're meant to put control in our hands. If we keep the laws, God loves us and blesses us. If we don't, then God doesn't. And now we have control, is what we think. And we start to think that our behavior controls what God will and won't do. But it's a big misunderstanding. And Paul gives clarity to this in Galatians chapter 3. Verse 17, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Here's what he means by this. The Mosaic law, given 430 years after a promise that God made to Abraham, does not all of a sudden become our way of making things right with God. It doesn't do away with the promise that God says, I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. But what ends up happening is we ask the question, then what's the purpose of the law? And Paul goes on in verse 19. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. What Paul is telling us is that the law was added in order for the people to see how sinful we really are until the seed, Jesus, comes and frees us from our sin. You've got to capture this because here's the irony of it all. This is given right after the people of God come out of slavery to Egypt. And imagine, remember what happens in Egypt? They're in slavery to Egypt, 
and they don't even realize it until Moses shows up. And it's when Moses shows up that their eyes to slavery became aware. And then they began to say, we need freedom. They didn't know they needed freedom until Moses showed up. In the same way, we don't realize that we need freedom until the law shows up. And it's there that we see there's no way I can please God unless God brings a Savior. And so when we look at this story, we've got to realize that sin is not noticed. Judgment is the law. It reveals our sin. The grace that is coming is the promised seed of Jesus. We live in a world where people say, don't judge me. You shouldn't judge me. Who are you to judge me? I believe that they respond in this way for two reasons. One is when somebody judges me, I don't like admitting that there's something wrong in my life. I would rather keep living like there's nothing wrong. And so I want to attack you and say, well, who are you to judge me? The second reason is most people bring judgment without any desire to follow it up with grace. The Bible always follows this pattern of sin, judgment, and grace. Do you realize that sin gives birth to judgment? Judgment opens the door for grace. Grace frees us from the very slavery of sin that we are in. Lake Forest Church, we've used the language for years of being a hospital for sinners instead of a country club for saints. Uh, I was actually, um, last year, I was at Novant Huntersville visiting somebody in the ER. And I came into the ER and I was waiting to be let back in and I noticed there's a guy, he actually lost two fingers. He was sitting on the side and he had a, actually a little pool of blood underneath sitting in the waiting room, hold, and a nurse came over and said, oh my goodness, uh, you're hurt, you're bleeding, we'll get to you. The most important thing, we're just glad you're here. We're so glad you're here, we'll be with you. And he's just bleeding. Okay, that's a lie, didn't, that didn't really happen. But that's a horrible hospital, wouldn't it be? <laughs> wouldn't it be horrible if you were sitting there bleeding and their response was, well, we're just glad you're here. Now, another story, it did, here's another one that, that, that reminded me of that, though. A couple years ago, I was visiting somebody at Presbytery, Maine, and they had a shared room, and I was here talking, and the doctor came in to talk to the other person, and the person was just moaning because, uh, and he asked the guy, he said, the doctor asked him, he said, what happened? He said, well, I think I broke my leg. I was skateboarding. He was trying, at age 52, he was trying to jump three cars and his uh, skateboard go underneath him, and he's climbing. And for 10 minutes, I sat there listening to this doctor just rail him about, what are you doing at age 52 doing this? You're an idiot. Just going, not, the guy's moaning. The doctor's not even helping. He's just yelling. He's, the doctor's yelling at him for doing this. Okay, that didn't happen either. See, already in one sermon, I've broken commandment number two of lying. But here's my point. What kind of hospital for sinners would we be in this community if we just looked at people and said, 
it's okay, you're broken, you're bleeding. The most important thing is you're just here. here. And yet we have no desire to offer true, truthful healing. The other side of that, what kind of hospital would we be if we're more interested in just slamming a person for their behavior as opposed to actually getting to grace? I believe the church is often known to forget that judgment opens a door for grace. If you are a rule keeper, you want to stay in judgment, don't you? As opposed to moving to grace. If you are a a suggested behavior, a lot of times you don't want to look at a person and bring judgment. Who am I? So in closing, I have a couple of questions for you. The first one is, comes out of the first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul. Do you realize that Jesus came to free you from sin? Are you willing to honor the Lord with all of who you are by actually naming the sin that's in your life? Are you willing to go to someone that you love and to name the sin in their life? Even if they say, who are you to judge me? I pray your answer to that might be a person who deeply loves you. Because I realize that judgment is your only step next to grace. And I stand here with grace as well. Second question from you comes from the second greatest command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Who have you held captive to judgment? Who for years, maybe, that you continue to hold captive to judgment? Never even offering the next step of grace. Who in this room have lived in judgment under God that you refuse to allow God to take you to the place of grace. As the worship team comes and leads us this morning, I want to close with this story that's meant a lot to me. A friend of mine a number of years ago, his name was Bill, and Bill was unhappy in his marriage. And Bill knew that If he committed adultery, his marriage would be done. And so he did. And then he moved out of state. He wouldn't even come back here to face his wife to finalize things. And so I was on the phone with Bill, and we had a deep friendship, and Bill knew that what he did was wrong, and he was good, my marriage is over. And so I told him, I said, Bill, I'm gonna pray for you. And he said, Mitch, I really need that, thank you. I said, no, Bill, let me tell you what I'm going to pray for you. I said, Bill, I'm going to pray that the Lord makes every day miserable for you until you come back here and own what you've done. Two weeks later, Bill moved back. And the reason he moved back is he said, your prayer became true. I was miserable. 
And I needed somebody to tell me the truth of the brokenness in my life. For the next several months, Bill still didn't want to make the marriage right. And so he didn't think he, I would want to spend time with him. And so I was purposefully every week, we'd go spend time together. We'd hang out. We'd go to football games together. We'd go just hang out. Why? Because I wanted him to know there's grace on the other side of this. I wasn't approving his behavior, but I was taking him the next step of grace. Today, Bill is happily married to the same woman and two beautiful children because we need to bring judgment knowing that grace follows. I pray this morning that you will allow judgment for yourself knowing that grace follows. But I pray that you will bring judgment to another with full grace to follow. Let's pray. Jesus, this uh, story of the law is a step of your promise. I thank you for the Ten Commandments. And I thank you that they are a step of judgment to the grace of Jesus that awaits all of us. As we stand and worship in this last song this morning, may that grace cover us full. In your name we pray. Amen.